the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network presents Vatican Insider with Joan Lewis. Each week, Joan brings you news from inside the Vatican and the church around the world, as well as interviews and answers to your questions. Now, here's the host of Vatican Insider, Joan Lewis. Welcome to a new edition of Vatican Insider, and this week we have a lot of news from the Vatican and a riveting guest on the interview segment. In fact, my guest this week and next is Father David Nazar, Rector of the Pontifical Oriental Institute in Rome. A Canadian Jesuit born to a family of Ukrainian origin, his multilingual, multicultural background, after years as a superior of Jesuits in Ukraine and former provincial of the Jesuits in the English Canada province, eventually led him to Rome. You'll learn about the Institute, where the students come from, the graduate courses and degrees it offers, its celebrated library, and its many unique aspects, including the fact it hosts the only Catholic faculty of Oriental canon law in the world. Don't miss that after the news. And now, the news highlights. Sunday, January 9th, the Feast of the Baptism of Jesus, Pope Francis in the Sistine Chapel administered the Sacrament of Baptism on 16 infants, nine girls and seven boys, children of Vatican employees. In an unscripted speech, he noted that the role of parents and godparents is to help the children deepen and preserve this Christian identity throughout their lives. It's a daily effort and commitment, he said, underlining the importance to help the children grow in the blessing of the light they receive today. Afterwards, at the Angelus, Pope Francis reflected on the gospel of the day that celebrates the baptism of the Lord, and he urged the faithful gathered in St. Peter's Square to reflect on the importance of prayer and remember the date of their own baptism. After praying the Angelus, he turned his thoughts to victims of protest in Kazakhstan, saying it was with sorrow that he heard of the numerous people who died in protests. I pray for them and their families. He expressed hope that social harmony might be rediscovered through dialogue and justice. Monday, January 10th, in the spacious Hall of Blessings, Pope Francis gave his annual address to members of the diplomatic corps accredited to the Holy See touching on the lights and shadows of the past year around the world. Currently, 183 states have diplomatic relations with the Holy See, to which are added the European Union and the Sovereign Military Order of Malta, based in Rome. The Pope began his 4,200-word speech to the diplomats by telling them their presence is always a tangible sign of the attention your countries devote to the Holy See and its role in the international community. He then highlighted visits to the Vatican by many heads of states and governments, as well as the trips he took in 2021, with particular emphasis on his visit to the island of Lesbos and the distressing situation of refugees, some of whom, he explained, were able to return to Rome with him. No part of the world escaped the Holy Father's observations, comments, criticism, reprovals, and urgings. He looked at wars and violence, unequal social systems and injustices, the pandemic and climate change, the abundance of weapons on hand, and the unscrupulousness of those who make every effort to supply them. He also decried the global situation of migrants and refugees. Also Monday, the Pope sent a telegram of condolences to Cardinal Timothy Dolan of New York for the many victims of the fire that broke out Sunday in the Bronx. 
He was especially sad that a number of children lost their lives and offered heartfelt condolences and the assurance of his spiritual closeness to those affected by the tragedy. Tuesday, January 11th, Pope Francis marked the 625th anniversary of the Faculty of Theology of the John Paul II Pontifical University in Krakow. He sent a message to Archbishop Marek Jedrzejewski, Grand Chancellor of the Pontifical University. Francis said he joined his Polish brother in gratitude to God for this tradition of more than six centuries, with all its scientific and educational achievements, as well as its spirituality, created by its holy founders, professors, and students. Remarking on challenges of the present, he invited faculty members not to forget tradition, but at the same time to look with hope to the future and create the future. Also Tuesday, Pope Francis sent a message of gratitude to Archbishop Peter Chung Soon Taek of Seoul, South Korea, for the South Korean faithful's generous contribution to its vaccine-sharing campaign that supports the Vatican's outreach to poor countries for the distribution of COVID-19 vaccines. Thanks to this help, he wrote, people in need around the world will receive assistance via outreach by the Office of Papal Charities. Also Tuesday. In a telegram to Alessandro Vittorini, wife of David Sassoli, President of the European Union, who died in the early hours of Tuesday morning following a serious illness, Pope Francis said he remembers him as a man of faith, animated by hope and charity. He assured Sassoli's wife and two children of his heartfelt participation in the mourning that has struck Italy and the European Union. Also Tuesday... At 7 p.m., Pope Francis paid an impromptu visit to Stereo Sound, an old record shop near the Pantheon, whose owners he has known from his time as an archbishop, when he stayed in the nearby Casa del Clero during his visits to Rome. He blessed the newly remodeled premises during his 10-minute visit, and the owner's daughter gifted him with a 33-rpm record of classical music. Wednesday, January 12th. In his Catechesis on St. Joseph at the General Audience, Pope Francis looked at Joseph's life as a worker and said the dignity of labor is essential for our human development and our growth in holiness. Joseph's work as a carpenter was a hard job, requiring strength but not generating great earnings, Francis said. Looking at St. Joseph helps remind all of us today of workers, especially those who do grueling work in mines and certain factories. He noted those who are exploited and children who are forced to work and those who rummage among the trash in search of something useful to trade. This reality also brings to mind those who are out of a job and suffering greatly because of it, especially families struggling to survive. Thursday, January 13th. Greeting members of French Catholic Action, Pope Francis recalled their tradition of coming to meet the Pope going back to Pope Pius XI. Bearing in mind their pilgrimage theme, Apostles Today, Francis reflected on the perennial call to be effective apostles today. He said when the disciples walked with Jesus, they began by recalling the events they experienced. Then they recognized the presence of God in those events. And finally, they acted by returning to Jerusalem to announce the resurrection of Christ. Also Thursday. Pope Francis urged participants in a Vatican conference on the post-pandemic future to make concrete commitments to putting the global economy at the service of people and the planet. The Dicastery for Promoting Integral Human Development hosted an online conference on Wednesday 
in which participants discussed the ways societies are being changed by the pandemic, and they offered new economic models that give more value to nature, people, and society, according to a press release. Also Thursday, the Vatican released Pope Francis's lengthy interview with Vatican Media on being parents in the time of COVID and the witness of St. Joseph, an example of strength and tenderness for today's fathers. Parents who face challenges for the sake of their children are heroes, he said. Topics treated were the year of St. Joseph, the audience catechesis dedicated to him, paternity, spiritual fatherhood, and challenges in COVID times. On Friday, January 14th, Pope Francis had a lengthy meeting with the bishops of Spain in Rome on their ad limina visit. By the way, this coming Sunday, January 23rd, at his celebration of Mass for the Sunday of the Word of God, Pope Francis will formally install new catechists and lectors, ministries open to women. Well, those are the highlights of the past week, but now stay here for my conversation with Father David Nazar, rector of the Pontifical Oriental Institute in Rome. He is honored by the Church as a saint and the first diocesan priest to be declared a doctor of the Church. Matthew Bunsen and the Doctors of the Church. St. John of Avila was known to his contemporaries as a spiritual master, and he served as a guide to some of the greatest saints of the 1500s. He also called for true reform in the Church and was a role model for the priesthood even today. He died in 1569. For more about the Doctors of the Church, visit doctorsofthechurch.com. Faith is a precious gift from God. As the largest religious media network in the world, EWTN has an important role in educating others about our Catholic faith and spreading the good news of salvation. We invite you to explore our numerous pages of historical faith documents, prayers, teachings, and other current issues in Catholicism today. Visit EWTN.com and click Catholicism. EWTN, the global Catholic network. Then there's a prayer that comes from fear. A lot of people are converted with this kind of prayer. They you know the old saying, there's no atheists in foxholes. Well, I hope that's true. It's amazing that sometimes the greatest conversions happen when somebody is so afraid, they suddenly reach out to God. Maybe their whole life they never reached out to God, and suddenly they cry, Lord, help me. Okay, conversion. Welcome back to Vatican Insider. Here's Joan Lewis. I want to welcome my guest to Vatican Insider to another fascinating guest on the interview segment. Today I'm at the Orientale, the Pontifical Oriental Institute in Rome, and this is part of the Gregorian University Consortium. And Father David Nazar is uh, my guest today. He's the rector of the Pontifical Oriental Institute, a Canadian-born Jesuit in uh, a family of Ukrainian origin. And you were the former superior of Jesuits in Ukraine and a provincial of the Jesuits in the English Canada province. uh, province. So you've been rector here, Father, since 2015. And welcome now to Vatican Insider. Thank you very kindly. You've done your research, I see. Yes, indeed. Well, in fact, this year you have a 100th anniversary, as I understand it, at the, uh, at the Institute, that it was 
Pius XI entrusted the institute to the Society of Jesuits in 1922. So that's right. We had celebrated the uh, the centenary of the institute itself in 2017 because it was founded right. at the time of the Russian Revolution by Benedict XV. But it is true. We thought about this: how we're going to celebrate the hundred years of the Jesuits. Uh, operating the Orientale. We don't have uh, clear ideas as to what we'll do, but we'll do something. Yeah. Well, I'll come to your celebrations. <laughs> now tell us about your upbringing in Canada, because what I did learn about you, you um, did a lot of work with, with Native people. I think you even speak a, a dialect or language or two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if, uh, do you want me to go back to the beginning, or do you want me to start as an adult? <laughs> um, go back to the beginning, sure. Well, the beginning it has its own interesting aspect, because I was born in the early 1950s, and it was at a time of uh, great immigration into Canada. Uh, so many people from that were displaced by the war, the Second World War, and they, kept, they continued to come to Canada for about five or six years after the war, from the camps and all. And uh, so uh, Toronto, which had been a very British city... Uh, was slowly becoming an immigrant city. And a lot of my friends were Italians and, uh, and Czechs and Germans, uh, all sorts of things. And clearly the Ukrainians came in, in very big numbers. So we were baptized and raised in the Ukrainian Catholic Church in Toronto. Today there are about 10 Ukrainian Catholic parishes in Toronto. Wow. And, uh, and we went to Latin Rite schools. The Catholic school network was the largest school network in Toronto. So our upbringing was in both churches. So for me, there was a very early awareness that the culture had a strong influence on the expression of the faith. Sure. You go to a Byzantine liturgy, you go to a Latin Rite liturgy, and it's the same substance, but the form, the presentation of it is is very different. Which was, for me, a great preparation once I entered the Jesuits in 1973 to think of working with Native people. Because the same question fascinated me. Here you had a Native culture and they had received Latin Rite Western missionaries, and you could see that there was a bit of a jar, that they were, the priests were wearing vestments from Europe, but here they were working with Native people. So our whole work, when I was there for about seven years, was to really transform the cultural expression of the faith. So with Native-made costumes of deer hide or moose hide, with decorations made by Native people on the vestments, and changing the decor of the churches uh, and all that. And you could see that it was something that dignified the people. Sure. That they were saying, who we are in our imagination is now in the holiest place. It's, it's serving God. It's, it's our manner of prayer. So that was something that for me came kind of naturally, but I had studied it quite a bit uh, in doctoral studies at, uh, at Ottawa, how culture and faith mutually influence each other. Oh, absolutely. Almost uh, uh, a reverse kind of the way we see the term enculturation today, almost a, a reverse kind of, of enculturation. No, that's exactly what it is. That's, that's what my dissertation was, was oh. on enculturation. So, and that's exactly what it is, is that the, the faith moves into a culture, becomes part of the culture, and develops. Like it. So that you go to different cultures, even within the Latin Rite, if you go to a, a Latin Rite Mass in Poland and one in Zambia, it's hard to recognize the similarity because in Zambia they're dancing and they're singing sure. and there are drums and, and you'd never sit still. Whereas in Poland you would sit still. And it's a different sense of prayer and meditation, equally important but a reflection of the culture. 
Well, you know, I worked at the Vatican for many years under John Paul and the, the beginning of, of Benedict's papacy. And uh, for the press office, we followed all of his visits and had to translate speeches into different languages. But our TV was on in our room all the time, watching Pope John Paul talk about enculturation, the masses in Asia, masses in Africa. And, and it, was, uh, it was an awesome experience, to be honest. And you could tell that the Holy Father certainly enjoyed that and just... In certain cultures, it was as if he had celebrated there all of his life. It was fascinating. Yeah, it was. There was some preoccupation. I want to say this with with great, great respect because he was a great pope. But there was concern that he had grown up in the East, in the Soviet Union, in a very strong Polish culture with this overlayer of Soviet culture, and and maybe without the same breadth of experience that others had in the West. And so I remember when he first went to Latin America and Africa. I remember there was concern that would he forbid them now from playing drums in church? Would he forbid them now from dancing ah, at mass? Yes. And when he got there, it's as you say, he, was, uh, he adapted to it quickly because he was a man so concerned with faith. And what he could see in the people was faith. They were expressing their It wasn't the discotheque. No. They were expressing their faith physically. And I think he was quite moved by it and just a very strong supporter of it. Yeah. Yeah, I always did get that impression that he was very moved. That's the the, the perfect word. So, um, now what brought you to Rome? Did you ever study here, or you're just now head of this amazing institute? I was brought to Rome by holy obedience. Okay. So, but that's I say that that's true because I was asked I was asked to come here, but that's our life as a Jesuit. That's our life. So I had been working in Ukraine. I worked with native people in Canada for seven years. Then, as you say, I was provincial. Then I was asked to go to Ukraine after the collapse of the Soviet Union, about 10 years after that, and was there for 13 years. Then um, there was need for a new rector here at the Orientale, and on paper I looked very good, <laughs> because I come from a Ukrainian culture, speak the language, I was raised in the two churches, Byzantine and Latin Rite Church, I had been a superior so in administration, and had a few languages. So I just seemed like a, an appropriate candidate for, for the Oriental at the time. And it turned out very providential because a lot of the things that might have been weak here in terms of administration were sort of my strengths. So there are a lot of things here we could, we could update the building, certain procedures, even certain ecological things like air quality in the sure. building and, uh, and things that you might take for granted, electronic communications and IT and sorts of things that we might take for granted in, in other countries. But they weren't difficult to put in here and with a warm res- uh, reception by, by the professors here. In fact, I'll tell you something on that, is that when I came, I, ha- I have a certain energy to do things, you know, and, and figure out projects. We had all these uh, meetings in my first year about what we should do. We had this long list of a 10-year plan and objectives that we all created together. And I think for a number of the, the professors, they thought, well, this is a nice plan, but nothing is going to happen. And then when things started to happen, there was a certain sense of saying, well, what are we doing this for? For example, if we talk about uh, the online teaching, which became so important uh, during the COVID period, we were putting in screens and cameras in all of the classrooms, uh, preparing for a future when we might teach online. Then when COVID came, well, they thought I was a prophet. Because now all the stuff was, we didn't lose one, one lesson because we had all of the infrastructure in place, high-quality material, which didn't really cost uh, very much. 
So, uh, so those are the things that I could do, and they seem to match with the needs of the place we're at the time. Well, as we say in Latin, Deo gracias. <laughs> now, Father, tell us a little bit about, I, I believe that most of my listeners are probably of the Latin right. So when we talk about Oriental churches, it, for many, many people, Oriental just means Asian. It means the East. It's a synonym for, but it's a different thing for the church and rights. Yeah. It's, uh, East and West is always relative to where you're standing. Yeah. So the term really comes from the eastern half of the Roman Empire, based in Constantinople. So the eastern churches are found in a big swath of land that goes from Russia all the way south, Ukraine, Bulgaria, uh, parts of, the, of Hungary and Slovakia and the Czech Republic, down through the entire Middle East, yeah. Greece, the entire Middle East, down to uh, Egypt and Ethiopia. Then if you take a horizontal line from southern Italy to southern India, so it's that huge swath of land that has a population perhaps of 300 million people. And there would be, the, uh, there'd be let's say there'd be 24 uh, oriental churches of varying sizes, big and small. There's a lot more than 24, but we'd have to write a dissertation to say why there are more than that. But that's basically the figure I always seem to come across, 23, 24, yeah. 23, 24, because that's the number within the Catholic Communion. But for every one of those in the Catholic communion, oh. there's a corresponding Orthodox one. And then there are different Orthodox groups that mutually exclude one another. Then there are a couple of other churches beyond that that don't belong to a group. So if, if you try to count them all, the number is probably 50 or something like yeah. that. Some very small, some very ancient, some very large. So we're talking about, I, I think probably in America, I know there's uh, the Maronites, there's Melkites, there's Syrian, Chaldean. That's the church I got to know the best because I spent quite some time in, in Iraq on different occasions. And um, as a matter of fact, at the seminary there, where I was a guest, they Mass on Monday would be in the Latin Rite, Mass on Tuesday would be in the Chaldean, Mass on, so you'd have several different rites. The seminarians were learning them all, and in the different languages, too. It was a, a very amazing um, seminary. Yeah, you, you kind of have to do that. All of those rites are there, and more, because of immigration, which is another whole point, the diaspora churches, as we call sure. them now, that they're all over the world, and not just in those, in those countries, which makes our teaching much more interesting, because we're teaching to the original churches where they were, but also for their diaspora communities, whether in the States or Canada or Europe or, or different parts of the world. And it is true that, the, as we were mentioning before, enculturation, when you look at the Byzantine Empire, then the Ottoman Empire, they always included four or five or six different churches that you'd often find in the very same city. Even going back to scriptural times, sure. you can see different groups uh, emerging. And they've always lived side by side. And anyone would be quite familiar with two or three of those churches. Absolutely. Now let's talk about specifically your work here. You're the only university in the world, as I understand it, to, um, to study Eastern churches? We're the only university in the world. It's a graduate school that studies all of the Eastern churches. So for sure you could go to Russia and the university and study the Russian Orthodox Church, or in Greece, the Greek Orthodox Church. But this would be the only institution in the world where you can study all of them. And the library is well equipped for all of those uh, churches. Yeah. Even original documents and language and manuscripts in Armenian, in uh, Syriac, in uh, Coptic, in uh, De uh, Ge'ez, in Ethiopian language. 
original documents or copies of manuscripts are all here, ways of interpreting them, studies having been, been done all, on all of them. Well, I understand that that's really probably one of the outstanding things about about the Orientale is the library, 200-some some thousand volumes. Yeah, there's about a quarter of a million books, and uh, there's a, a famous professor of Eastern churches in London who comes here every now and then. Once we invited him to give a conference, and he opened this conference by saying, uh, today in the world you have a choice if you want to study the Eastern churches. You can go all around the world and study each of those churches, or you can come to the Orientale and study all of those churches. Wow. And, and it's quite true. The resources in the library are extraordinary, collected during this whole period of 100 years. Very impressive, very impressive collections. We often have people come here from Russia, Romania, Bulgaria, from the Middle East, uh, from Ukraine. Um, they come here and they, they look at the library and they see we no longer have these books in our country. We no longer have these manuscripts in our country. Wow. You can imagine the situation right now with, with Syria. Syria has gone through all of these wars. Even the manuscripts they have, many of them have been destroyed. Libraries have been burned down, buildings have been bombed. So this place, the Orientale, becomes only more important. We have more sure. Syriac, Syrian students coming here to study because of the, these modern phenomena. I remember one time, uh, one afternoon when I was in Iraq, Father Bashar, who was later to become Bishop Bashar Warda, he uh, headed the seminary there, and he brought me to visit a house of Dominican uh, priests who were restoring manuscripts. And um, there were a lot of things that in the early days of the war, so much of the cultural heritage museums had been destroyed and buildings burned, and, and they were just sitting with any, any technology available to them to help you know, restore the documents. So I know how important... Yeah, and it's very, it's very significant. Some of it is a bit humorous, too, because when you're in the same place all the time, you don't pr- appreciate maybe the culture or the history of where you are. In Toronto, it's rare to find a building older than 100 years. A 100-year-old building in Rome is sure. nothing. New. Yeah. You know? yeah. And then the amount of research that you can do in Rome about the history and all this, which a lot of Italians themselves don't do. Well, similarly, with a lot of these manuscripts, you know, you, you go into Ethiopia, you have these funny stories where, you know, some uh, monk is living in a cave, and he has a manuscript from the 5th century. And you ask him, well, where did you get that from? And he'll say, well, I, I got that from my father. Well, where did your father get that from? Well, he got it from his father. And you know that you've started a long story that's going to go through centuries of fathers to get wow. back to the original manuscript. So some of these uh, manuscripts of great importance have not uh, acquired in, in the local area the importance that they would for a researcher outside. So even for a lot of these places, our men go there in the summers, find manuscripts, and either copy them or, with permission, bring them here for research uh, in, in our libraries. That's all the time I have today with Father Nazar, but come back next week for part two of our riveting conversation about the Pontifical Oriental Institute in Rome. You will hear some very surprising stories. For more information on these stories or to check out Joan's blog and to ask her a question, go to EWTN.com. That's EWTN.com. Thanks for listening to Vatican Insider on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.